0: Bloody betrayal. That's the theme of this week's episode. Actually, it's the theme of 900 years of Irish history since Strongbow first landed on the shores. 900 years of treachery, treason, and betrayal, where someone, somewhere, somehow is going to inform your enemies to your projects, your plans, and risk the lives of all your people. This week is also the story of a murderous blood feud that ranks up there with the Capulets and Montagues of Renaissance Italy. Except this blood feud is happening right now in modern-day Ireland. It's a feud that features one of the most bizarre, brazen shootouts since the Wild West. It's a feud that is linked to the highly lucrative drug trade. It's a feud that has left dozens of corpses across Dublin. And it's also a feud that features international sport at the highest level. Welcome to Crime Waves. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Crime Waves. I'm Declan Hill, an Associate Professor of Investigations at the University of New Haven. And each week, my students and I, this week it's Eric Krebs and Aaron Griffin, bring you stories of corruption, organized crime, and forensic science. My particular passion is the effects of corruption in sport. And boy, this week is a doozy. The interview features the links between international boxing and MMA with what Amnesty International calls sports washing. It features tales of murder and mayhem and boxing that stretch across three continents. Our guest is Karim Zidan. He's a brilliant polymath of a journalist. Now a Canadian, but raised in Egypt where he covered art, history, and the challenges of the progressive democratic movement with a largely authoritarian regime. He's an editor at Bloody Elbow, where he has covered the links between politics, human rights, and organized crime within boxing, MMA, and the UFC. And if you haven't read his articles, I strongly urge you to do so. They're going to change the way you view sports. In this episode, I began by asking him about that weird, wild, and murderous shootout. And when I say shootout, I mean shootout. At the press conference for the weigh-in, of the European boxing championship in a five-star hotel in the middle of Dublin. Good morning, Kareem. Thank you so much for uh, joining us here on Crimeways. Oh, it's a pleasure, Declan. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, listen, brother, it's an honor, but let's start right away. Let's just kick off with one of the weirdest, most bizarre, and one of the most bloody scenes in a sport that just rejoices in blood, and that's international boxing. It's the way in It's February the 5th, 2016. We're at a fancy hotel, the Regency Hotel in North Dublin. The two fighters are at the front of the room. The press is there. And then what happens?
1: It is really one of the strangest scenes. And, I mean, the video is online. For those who don't believe us, what we're about to say here, the video is right there <laughs> on YouTube for anyone it who does wants see- to look it up. So there yes. really is no room for exaggeration at this point. But really, here's what happened. Five or six gunmen stormed the Regency Hotel with AK-47. Some of them even dressed like police officers and started shooting up the place. It was targeted, absolutely. And an important mafia figure or mob figure did die that day, and that's David Byron. And yes, yeah, it was a targeted shooting targeting the, the Kinahan family, which was actually running that boxing event. So when we ask why this specific boxing event, well, it's because... The mafia was involved in the boxing event. They were actually putting on the show. So it makes it an easy target at that point.
0: And, and, and I'm going to leap forward to another event that just happened last month. We're recording this in July of 2020. But the reigning heavyweight champion of the world, this crazy, the, you know, he rejoices on the Monica, the Gypsy King, Tyson Fury, does an announcement on Instagram. Please tell us about that.
1: So he announces on Instagram that he has reached a two-fights agreement to fight Anthony Joshua at some point in 2021. Now, the rumors were already swirling about that this was going to happen, but here was the key thing. He, as he was making this announcement, and he's super excited, he's talking about these, he can't wait to fight Anthony Joshua. Anthony Joshua was a big deal. This is probably one of the biggest heavyweight boxing fights you can put on in this generation at this point. What he goes and does is the strangest thing. He decides, instead of just talking about the fight he's going to thank Daniel Kinahan the alleged person who runs the day-to-day of the Kinahan cartel like it's it was just a complete shock it's for some people who might not know Tyson Fury and and Daniel Kinahan have been very friendly to a point he's even like an advisor to Fury but for for most people listening to that Instagram they they had no idea and then they hear the name Kinahan which is notorious in in Ireland and you know, immediately, uh, red flares are up in the sky, telling people what's going on here. Why is the mafia involved in this? How did this even happen? How did he get involved in boxing? How did he even uh, help make this fight a thing?
0: So let's unpack that. We've got two major media announcements in international boxing, and at the highest level of international boxing. You know, this is the heavyweight. I, you know, the, 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 the weight class that everybody follows. It's the reigning world champion, Announcing, you know, the big title defense against a fellow Brit. They're going to do it in Saudi Arabia. So it's around the world from Ireland, from a from a this this shootout at a press conference that's virtually recorded live. What's the linkage? Talk to us about that whole linkage between these two events. Whoa.
1: So the link has to be the man named Daniel Kinahan. Tell truth us more. Truth be told, truth be told, Daniel Kinahan. Well, ever since the first instant we just talked about being the shooting. After that, that sparked a bloody gangland feud between what is known as the Kinahan cartel and the Hutch gang. The Hutch gang really were much more small time than the Kinahan cartel, which really can be described as the biggest drugs and arms trafficking uh, cartel in, within Ireland at this point. And I mean, extending across from Ireland into a network that goes beyond into Spain and even North Africa at a certain points. So that's an extensive network for this. What began as a small family in, uh, in Ireland. So you take down and the Hutch guy, the Hutch gang, was just you know small-time gang that really worked for the Kinahans for the most part. And then uh, <laughs> one one execution, Gary Gary Hutch gets killed and gets murdered, really by the Kinahan, allegedly by the Kinahan cartel. And that sets off sort of a whole revenge plot, which leads us to the Regency Hotel shooting, where the Hutch gang is the ones who are perpetrating the shooting here. Yeah, so it, the Hutch just, guys
0: are shooting the Kinahans. The Kinahans are shooting the Hutch. Shooting can, back. Can, so, and, and can, I just, at this
1: point can I just decided... make a,
0: a, 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 just a, a jump in here, Kareem? Because you, you, you know my background, my, my family's Irish, and I want to sum up what is going on between the Hutches and the Kinahans in one word. And it's the same word that defines much of Irish political and military history back for a thousand years. And every single Irish person that's listening to it will know the word that I'm about to say, and that's betrayal because somebody somewhere is betraying the gang that the the the, somebody inside the Kinahan gang is informing the cops and that's what kicks it off the same thing that happened to the ira and the fight against the british army half of them we find out now were on the payroll of british intelligence the same thing it just it's it's a constant bloody, and I use that word advisedly, theme in Irish history, back to De Valera, back to, you know, Michael Collins, all these guys have always been betrayed by the Judas in their midst. Um, Tell us a little, yes, sorry.
1: So I'm saying basically what you're saying has just played out, that kind of Irish history has played out in this gang rivalry over the last four years, because it really did start with betrayal. The Kinahans believed that Gary Hutch was really a big-time enforcer for them, was an informant for the police because multiple of their drug shipments had been stopped by, by the Irish police at that point. They're, they're very suspicious. They think it's Gary Hutch. Gary Hutch reaches an agreement through through Jerry Hutch, the head of the, of, the, of the Hutch gang. He reaches an agreement to actually basically retire from the gang. He's taking a severance package and he's moving to Spain. And that's supposed that is, to the end that is- of it.
0: Yeah, it's it So <laughs> That's so extraordinary, it, you know, it, 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 it tells you a certain aspect of the Kenahan gang where you can negotiate, oh, I'm gonna retire from the mob. I'm not gonna be killed, I'm gonna retire, I'm gonna take a severance package.
1: Well, the idea was that uh, Christy, the, the dapper Don Kinahan, who was the, the head of the Kenahan cartel, he was supposed to be very good friends with Jerry Hutch. So it's sort of in part a favor to Jerry Hutch, in part sort of showing respect this other elder, sort of statesman, in the mob But when they actually came to this agreement, I think it was almost worth about a million dollars. The severance package. Jerry Hutch takes it and leaves, then gets executed later that same year. So by the Keenahan guys. By the Keenahan.
0: So there's two. So they go back on. The, they go back. It's a double betrayal. They go exactly. back on their
1: word. They go back on their word, and that was really that's the spark that sets off the Hutch family. Jerry Hutch at no point thereafter was ever willing to make a deal with the Kinahans. So there was multiple more executions that happened, all generally from the Hutch, from the Hutch uh, family, especially after the Regency hotel shooting, there was just a slew of assassinations that came thereafter. Then Chrissy tells uh, Chrissy Kinahan, of course tells, uh, Jer- uh, tells Jerry Hutch, "All right, let's meet and squash this." And Jerry Hutch says no. No. That's how much that betrayal meant to him. He was willing to lose his entire family, and he really did lose most of his family. I mean, there have been 18 assassinations so far in, uh, in this feud. A few of them were a case of mistaken identity. So some poor innocent people have died just because they were mistaken for one of these gang members. But the vast majority of them, honestly, are Hutch, hutch, uh, hutch family members. So this small-time gang, standing up to the Kinahans, has really suffered the most and they suffered the most. Why? It's, it's this sort of this moral statement, it's, this, it's uh, like, you, you betrayed me, there is no going back, there is no making a deal at this point. So yeah, yes, and really used- when you mention betrayal, it's an essential
0: component of the story. And I, I also draw the attention uh, to the blood feud nature that this is relatives this isn't just a bunch of goons killing goons mm-hmm. this is family versus family and again the irish historians among our listeners are going to know this is you know the repeat of what happened in 1918 when the, the whole civil war kicked off that this is family against fa- family that's going on here um I, I before we move to the middle east before we take this onto an international scale i just want to just want to plumb the depths of irish gang land a little bit more and want to draw out a little bit of the moral characters of these guys who come from destitute North Dublin areas. One's from, excuse me, one's from North Dublin, one's from an area of South Dublin, and this is poor. This is the poorest area of Western Europe in the 1970s and 80s when they're growing up. Tell us a little bit about Kinahan Dad, and his refusal to leave prison. Why does he refuse to leave prison when he's in jail? It's the 1990s, and, and he says, "Hey, I I am kind of comfortable." What 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 happens? What does he do?
1: What's well, a really remarkable thing is that Chrissy Kenahan decides that he does not want to be lent out on you know good good parole or whatever it may be just for you know being a good uh, upstanding prisoner at the time. Instead, he had already enrolled in some French language classes. And through those French language classes, he had been progressing. So he decided, no, I'm not leaving here until I finish this and I learn my French. So he actually turned down. In jail. Early. He stayed in jail willingly just to complete French. He also made the claim, if I'm not in snow, actually, I believe that was the monk who made the claim about the, the, being a heroin addict. I don't think that that was Chrissy Kinahan. So uh, like, uh, let's, let's hold off on that bit. But the point is, he did want to stay in jail. It was sort of cleansing him. It was cleansing him to a certain extent. Those were the comments that he was making at the time. And of course, because he was picking up some French, which he thought would be extremely useful. What well, we find out later through that French is that he ended up expanding his drug and arms trafficking network into North Africa. So through Spain, which they had a lot of access to, they'd enter into Morocco. There's French-speaking people. And then, of course, you can go there from Albin to Algeria, into Tunisia, where French is essential to communicate. Well, they're not going to be speaking... I mean, Kinahan family, as great as, they, as, as great as Chrissy was to learn this language, he wasn't going to be picking up Arabic and speaking to them in Arabic, no, especially but the he dialects was... available there. But French, on the other hand, much more accessible, and that's exactly what he did.
0: So, So that's on the one side where you have a, a family from this very poor section that's willing to learn languages, willing to kind of grow... On the other hand, you have the Hutch. And the leader of the Hutch is a guy called the Monk. Tell us a little bit about the Monk and the difference between the Monk and the rest of these hard-drinking, pub-going, alcoholic, and I'm speaking, you know, I know these guys. Tell us a little bit diff- about the, the Monk's lifestyle and the difference there.
1: The Monk's lifestyle definitely was different because now he is the one, now that, now that I remember correctly, who, who did I at least claim to have a heroin addiction of sorts. And through that heroin addiction, he decided, you know what, being in prison is a way to stay clean. It is a way to stay clean and to sort of rejuvenate himself and to just stay away from drugs and stay away from that side. So he created this almost sort of spiritual character for himself. And I, I, I can, I've never been to prison, but I can put myself in a position where I can understand that this sort of, if you tie yourself to some sort of spiritual cause or belief, etc., it might make your time in prison a little easier to get through. So I guess that's what he did. He started living this very both Spartan and spiritual existence, where uh, very, very little interest in superficial things and uh, and and yeah, and in the outside As world aside of, generally. Aside from yeah.
0: running a drug gang, he had very uh, little always. other things.
1: So, so that's yeah, I, beauty, that's I, you a just have hypocrisy there always. There's this beautiful hypocrisy in mobsters always, right? So this is a fantastic example of that.
0: But it 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 really it really is a Shakespearean tale. You have these two families you know like the montagues and the capulets and the leaders are these kind of separate spiritual guys one is pursuing this international thing one's got a monk-like lifestyle and i gotta say kareem if we're ever together in dublin you'll see how exceptional <laughs> that kind of lifestyle is they are the greatest partiers in the world the 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 blood feud begins as keenahan kills the nephew of the monk
1: exactly He's gary now
0: left 18 bodies across dublin in an assassination of a blood feud drug war Bring us to spain and tell us about the connections with international boxing
1: So the right beneath uh, Chrissy Kinahan, who's known as dapper Don as well So right beneath chrissy Kinahan is his son daniel. Okay. Kenahan. Now. Go these ahead. are very different characters I'd like to i'd like to note that first of all, which is that chrissy there was, a, there was a chance that you would never know where he is. Even a lot of the family, apparently, allegedly, did not know where he was at most times, whether he was in Ireland, whether he had traveled. He had no interest in being pictured. We're not talking about a sort of a John Gaudy kind of figure here, right? We're talking about someone who wanted to stay entirely out of the limelight, wanted nothing to do with it, wanted no press, never wanted to see his name in the paper. This wasn't the kind of person who was sort of getting high off the, off the attention. Not yes. at all. His son, on the other hand, was always sort of in the, in the limelight, in the media figure. And that just sort of expanded. As the, the rivalry took off, Daniel Kinahan was already, the rivalry, of course, between the Kinahans and the Hutch. Daniel Kinahan was already at the stage where he was trying to rebrand himself as a boxing guy. So what he went and did was he traveled to Spain and started where there was, of course, part of their, part of their, their drug and arms trade was in Spain. They're in Marbella. And while he's there, he decides to start a gym. he calls MGM Marbella and he started with with a friend of his one of one of his boxing friends and this gym slowly transforms into a a manage a management uh, company basically they start managing boxers etc and that's growing as the Hutch uh, as the Hutch uh, Kinahan rivalry is also coming coming alive at this point Daniel Kinahan realizes okay it's probably not safe for me in Ireland anymore I think what people have to realize about the Kinahan Hutch rivalry is that it was still devastating for both groups. Sure, it was the Hutch family that really suffered, but both the Kinahan and Hutch family ended up all their their what was once underground. This mob life that was once underground has now become the daily readings in the newspaper. I mean the police are, it's like their number one priority in many cases. They are now under a microscope that they weren't under before this rivalry. And I think that's an essential thing to note. People got really mad at Daniel Kinahan there for that.
0: Uh can I um uh just just situate on one thing because it's we're we're covering the years now between two, 2016 and and the, the the shootout at the hotel and 2020 when you and I are speaking. But I want again to double emphasize this I know as an Irish guy Declan it, it it's sounding like I've got an obsession here but even now the betrayals are going on because part of the reason, when you read the newspaper articles about the Kenahan-Hutch feud, is that they're still betraying the gang to the media or to the police. They're still talking about this. So any hope for the senior Kenahan father, Pat, uh, Pateras Familius, of keeping this quiet is gone. They're still talking too much. Let's get back to international boxing because you can hear the passion in my voice. I could talk about Irish mob war, you know, for all morning. So bring us back to international boxing, please. So Daniel Kinahan
1: decides, and there have been various different reports whether it be he was he decided to leave Ireland permanently, or really yes. at least let's say a semi-permanently, just because a he was he feared for his life, and he feared for his life according to the various reports either because a his own family was disappointed in the way he's been he's handled the feud. Basically, these, all these executions that happened have now placed the family under a microscope. They're no longer able to operate the same way they were before, and it's costing them millions upon millions of dollars. So they're not very happy with him. And at the same time, the Hutch gang is obviously after him as well. So he decides, you know what? I'm not up for this anymore. And he leaves, first heads to Spain, where an attempt on his life occurs. He survives Which year? that. Which year are we in? We are still at this point in about 2016, maybe early 2017. Okay. And that's when he decides to go to Dubai. And This is the key point here, because now Daniel Kinahan, is, he would not, of course, not be the first sort of mob figure or really sort of controversial character or shady character that ends up in Dubai. Let's just, let's just put that d- out d- there d- right d- now. D-
0: just a second, Kareem. i am just going to make sure I understand the international escalator. So I've gone from North Dublin, which is used to be the poorest, um, area in all of Western Europe by by leaps and bounds. It's transformed, but at the same time it's transforming. You got a guy who's gone first to Spain to run an international boxing gym, and now he's in the Middle East and he's on the run from a blood feud, a drug war blood feud. What 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 you know talk us like like I'm sorry, my head is whirling. The the, oh, the no. geographical spin is going on. Why does he choose Dubai of all places in the world? Dubai is sort of
1: one of those places where if you are a notorious figure, if you've got any sort of political notoriety or societal notoriety in this form, like like these mob figures, it is an interesting harbor for you. It is an interesting haven, a because you have the money to to uh, to interact with the city as a haven. It is like sort of a refuge for not the downtrodden at this point, but sort of the, the, the dirtiest segments of society, hey, because they can afford it. And a lot of the sheikhs in, 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 in Dubai and in the Middle East in general, you'll find this in Saudi, etc., get off on interacting with these kinds of people. They really do. For a while, when there was uh, a civil war in Chechnya and Russia, a lot of those commanders who ended up losing out to Ramzan Kedira fled to Dubai specifically. They had the money. They fled to Dubai and they stayed there until two of them were assassinated in Dubai.
0: So it's we're, kind of we're, of like talking,
1: f- we're talking back in two thousand six, seven here at this point. But, but and I, it's I off remember topic.
0: Yeah. Uh, Dawood Ibrahim going completely off topic. The famous Bombay mafia godfather, the man who's reputed to have. Um, Arranged the attacks on the Taj Mahal uh, through a um, terrorist network. He ended up in Dubai for some time. So is this like a pirate capital? Kind of like the the, the you know a modern day pirate?
1: It's very strange because if you go to Dubai, and I, I I I was in Dubai maybe six months ago. On the outside, I mean, apart from being very very gaudy at certain parts of the city, just because the way it looks, etc way too ostentatious. It operates in a very professional level. You would never expect this sort of underground life from what you're seeing all around you. You've got professional business people operating. There's sort of a level of law and order that you'd expect in a city, in a city like this. But then you have this completely different part of Dubai. It's almost like Dubai at night sort of thing where you do end up, if you're out, if you're around long enough, you'll hear the stories about it, sex trafficking, about about mafia, mafia, mafiosos existing in the city. I mean, there's lots of space. There's penthouse. As long as you have money in Dubai, you'll get away with pretty much anything you want. As long as you don't upset the government. That's another key element. There is no democracy in this place. It is an authoritarian regime. Right. That is important Just to know.
0: Before we get into the human rights situation, we've got a long course, discussion to have about that. I want to pull us back, wrench us back, because we're still talking about an Irish alleged mobster. And when I use the word alleged, Almost the U.S. State Department <laughs> alleges, the Irish police are, allege, the European police allege, and they all allege that this guy is the top of a multi-billion euro drug ring, and he's now landed up in Dubai on the run from a blood feud with a hutch gang from North Dublin. How? What? 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 Tie this together, please, before we get into the larger pictures of human rights. Why does, what is he doing in Dubai, and what's the link with international boxing?
1: I, so the link with international boxing is not necessarily pre-existing in Dubai, mm-hmm. but it's something that he himself decides that he needs to do. Daniel Kinahan decides, okay, I've made a mistake by having too much of a public image here. What I would like to do now, since my name is, my surname is Kinahan, I'm forever attached to this family. What I would like to do is reinvent myself as a boxing promoter. He, he must have seen that the money was to, was going in the direction of the Middle East with Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and all these other countries, and the UAE, using their dollars to sports watch, basically. And we'll get into all those details and how that applies to human rights soon. But it's idea yes. that they're trying to distract from all these problems within their countries by bringing in all these big sports events, pretending that they're these progressive societies and progressive countries. We've seen this a lot with Saudi Arabia. I mean, they just had a big Anthony Joshua Anthony Joshua fights very, very recently. So that's exactly Daniel Kinahan,
0: yeah. So Kinahan plays into this kind of zeitgeist that's floating that's, around in the area. Hey, I can bring you the sporting goods. I can bring you these big events. I can do this kind of stuff to help. Exactly. It's a way to legitimize himself. So
1: instead of being known as oh that mobster who's hiding out in Dubai, he wants to be known as oh that boxing promoter who runs that big gym in Spain that's become a boxing uh, Mecca, uh, promotional yeah. and management managerial company and he will bring us all the fights we need. Through that, Kinahan would end up meeting all the big-time sheikhs, the Ministry of Tourism, etc., and works very closely with them, thus securing himself in this country. Try extraditing someone who the Middle East sees as useful to them, or especially these Gulf states. It's never going to happen. It's never going to... I mean, Irish police are trying to extradite him right now. They know he's there. Kinahan's not going anywhere.
0: Because uh, but, he's useful in terms of his connections with... with... Exactly. With, with international boxing.
1: And now, he did this quite quietly for the first few years because I have to note that once this rivalry really kicked off, the kenahan Hutch rivalry, he tried to distance himself from the MGM gym to the point that MGM gym in Spain, here, you know, the gym that he started, renamed itself as MTK Global, became Primarily a uh, a managerial company, and said it claimed in a press release that it had distanced itself from Kinahan. But because the Irish press continued to yeah, but I to, mean, to, hang, to hang on, on a it. second,
0: hang on a second. One management company that he had founded said we've now distanced him. A continuing number of really high level fighters, including Tyson Fury, of the current course. heavyweight boxing champion of the world, not only last month announced that. Kenahan had arranged his upcoming fights, series of fights, but he'd also taken selfies with him.
1: There'd of been course. all
0: kinds of you know, friendly stuff and people continue to talk about the close relationship between these guys. Look, and a lot of these people before, are very just open a second, about- Kareem, Kareem, just a second. Before we get any further, there are people who have listened with bated breath for the name I'm just about to drop. Because before we go any further, we've got to figure out this. He is the most well-known Irish fighter of this last century and people want to know has he got his fingerprints in this and we all know who I'm about to mention Conor McGregor is Conor McGregor involved in any way in this conversation that we've taken place so far and if so how it's one
1: of those two or th- three degrees of separation incidents it, this there's no real proof that he's a he's a he's a mobster or anything of the sort but is he friendly with them is he aware of all these people has he taken pictures with them absolutely and so well, he's take actually taken far- pictures
0: with the, these mobs oh with
1: multiple of them multiple of them i'll i'll i'll, I'll let you everything i have figured out about uh, about connor and the mob so far i'll mention right now it really he's begins at the boxing at the at the Crumlin uh, boxing club where a lot of these people trained. I mean, that's where Conor McGregor got his start. That's where Jamie Kavanaugh got his start. And Jamie Kavanaugh actually is the boxer who was headlining the, 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 the boxing event that ended up being shot up the Regency Hotel the way in the day before. So Jamie Kavanaugh, who was part of the, the Kinahan the cartel, mm-hmm. well, not Jamie himself, but his family, obviously. Jamie actually was specifically a boxer, but his family. Well, I mean, both his father and his uncle were both enforcers for the Kinahan cartel before they were both like uh, uh, executed as well. What? So, oh, yes. Yeah, so no, 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 no. You're making this
0: is a Hollywood movie, I Kareem. I know, not, Kareem, absolutely. you've gone too far <laughs> now, brother. I just I cannot <laughs> believe you're, you're, you're linking the number one most famous fighter in the world at a gym. And the guy he's training with was shot at. He was fortunately he wasn't killed. At the Regency Hotel shootout where a bunch of guys came in with machine guns and started shooting And that fighter's father and uncle were also part of this mass blood feud gang warfare
1: Absolutely, and not just that not just that So Jamie Kavanaugh was there and did and did train at the the Crumblin boxing gym Whether he was a few years younger than McGregor or not I'm not 100% certain about that one But here's the other interesting thing the actual person who did die the enforcer for the Kinahans who did die that day at the Regency Jose Hotel, who's was David Byron. He was also someone who trained at the Kremlin boxing gym with McGregor and someone that McGregor had taken selfies with. So all of these people seem to gather at this boxing gym. Okay. And I mean, it, doesn't, it makes sense, right? Poor neighborhood and boxing is a sport that does not, it does not have real barriers to entry. You need a pair of gloves and you need to learn how to fight. It's, and, and you need a place to train. I understand that, but in comparison to other sports, where there's so much equipment to buy, etc., tons of barriers to entry, making them elite sports. Boxing is not that, not in the slightest. It's the way it's the way a lot of. Po- I mean, we've heard this time and time. It's almost become the cliche story. Yes, and, and, it and out just to, through boxing,
0: we're boxing, and it's it's. Um, and and we began our conversation earlier this morning with a discussion of. Myself and the current Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, <laughs> yes. we train together at a particular gym in Ottawa, Canada, where you have Haitian refugees, you have things, and just everyone's kind of mucking in together. So to be very clear, we're not suggesting Conor McGregor is a paid member of the mob or has received financial compensation anyway. He, just, he happens to know this. He's perfectly familiar with this world because this world, all the fighters kind of know the mobsters and all the mobsters, well, In Kavanaugh's case some of them were the monsters
1: but I think McGregor yeah sorry go ahead so sorry we got
0: that spaghetti internecine Dublin thing and by the way if you need to understand the Civil War of Ireland this is exactly what it's like and this is the betrayal (laughs) this is the the cousin is betraying the cousin and the families and everybody knows each other and it's 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 weird Crumlin is in South Dublin and the difference between Crumlin, which is a poor section of town, and south, the rest of South Dublin, which is probably one of the richest areas, if not the richest area in all of Ireland, is extraordinary. And there is a different accent across two or three streets. Forget you know, three miles, two blocks and that accent and changes as if these people are living in a different neighborhood speaking about a different neighborhood in a country we're in Dubai we've got this guy Daniel Kinahan's who has escaped from that he's now helping the government in this Middle Eastern country arrange fights and do this promotion deals and all that kind of stuff let's take a step back and talk about the human rights situation in Dubai can you tell us a little bit about the human rights of the laborers, the people, the hundreds of thousands of people that are making that city and that country.
1: Well, that city that I just called Gaudi. <laughs> well, that city, that giant city that they have built with yes. all their skyscrapers. Yes, is built with built on the hands of laborers. A lot of it, <laughs> a lot of it done in horrific uh, working conditions, living conditions, living standards. I mean, I was in Dubai about six months ago, and I. One of my friends who was there was like, let me give you the tour nobody's going to give you. Awesome. And I, we did. We got in his car and we drove through a lot of those poorer neighborhoods. And to stand, let me uh, let me put it this way. To stand in those neighborhoods, because I decided to get out and I wanted to go for a walk and really experience it. Because some of the areas were quite, it was the first time I felt real sort of uh Uh, an organic or sort of something something real about this city. But when you turn from where you are in the sort of outskirt portion of the city, this little ghetto or shanty town almost, that's how, unfortunately, I can't find another term accurate enough to use for that. Yes. You look to the other side and you see actual Dubai with all its skyscrapers. It looks like Gotham from the Batman movies. It looks like Gotham. That's what it comes off as. So when you really... I'm using that as sort of this flowery way to describe just how bad it is for these for these workers there. And that's to this day, and that's after all the improvements they've made. Now we're talking about 2020 when I visit this, in the beginning of 2020. You wanna go back 10, 20, 30 years ago, it was horrific, the treatment, it was horrific.
0: Now Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, a number of these human rights groups talk about human trafficking of of thousands, tens of thousands of laborers. Is that fair in your assessment? I think right.
1: I think it's important to use these terms because say even if the person was not kidnapped from point A to point B if their passport is taken when they arrive into the country which this is which happens to a lot and this is not just for laborers building it's for maids coming in for all okay any any sort of position where it's it's viewed as a lower class position in their eyes in 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 the gulf things that they would never do themselves yes you can have your passport taken from you and it's done to a lot of it's done to a lot of Indians, it's done to a lot of Pakistani uh, migrants, etc. Those are really primary examples, Filipino uh, migrants to the region. If your passport's taken from you, that is basically, that to me, is, is, is as good as human trafficking. That to me is as good as kidnapping.
0: Because, because you it's your control. Yes,
1: exactly. It's complete control. You're forcibly detaining someone. There is no rule of law. You can't suddenly go and complain. You can't, you can't even leave at your own free will. And that's what happens to a lot of people. We've heard, and this is not... I need to spec- I need to state that this is not specific to the United Arab Emirates, but occurs across across the the Gulf, the Gulf region.
0: But one incident that was specific to the UAE is that weird tale. We're a princess, and we are gonna get back to boxing. We are gonna get back to boxing, but I just wanna just wanna lay out the kind of circumstances that are going on, the social circumstance in this particularly strange city some people call it a pirate capital of the world Others call it an international business center. We'll figure this out. She gets on a yacht this princess Tell us that story, please
1: I wish there was much to tell unfortunately, but uh, we still don't really know the ends of this or where this is going But let's start with this 33 year old princess, right princess Latifa, and she was living her life as a member of dubai's royal family with uh, the with, with I mean with with the ruler the Sheikh Maktoum the ruler of dubai uh, one of his wives his youngest wife and decides that it's time for her to flee i mean there was, you would hear some horrific stories about what she was saying about the way they'd want to scare her whenever she wanted something or wanted a bit more freedom they'd land helicopters outside her patio area or her or her house In an attempt to just scare her, this idea that we can we can make you disappear in no time. They were hiding guns under her pillow. Of course, I say all this allegedly. This is what she says when she put out YouTube videos. It said this is what she said. They were hiding guns under her pillow. It was, and that's that's a psychological one. There, it's either oh, you want to take your own life, or do you want us to do it for you? It's a horrific thing to do to someone, a 33 year old, and this is a princess. So of course she flees, and, and I think this was in about March 2018 and she's about to arrive to India and that's about it, that's the last we've heard.
0: <laughs>
1: so you've she has got been a country- taken, she, has been, she has definitely been taken at this point.
0: So we've got a country where from the very poor, the, the you know, to use human rights watch, and amnesty international word of, of trafficked, to a princess is under problems and there's all kinds of human rights activists in jail, there's all kinds of stuff. And in the midst of this country, UFC decides to build a fight island. What is the connection between the fight island with Daniel Keenahan, which is really what this podcast is about, the story of the Irish stuff, and this weird Middle Eastern country? Wrap this up for us, please, Kareem. Tell us what the connections are between international boxing, fighting, and this country.
1: It seems that the United Arab Emirates really enjoys combat sports, whether it be mixed martial arts, jiu-jitsu, or, or boxing, as a form of sports-washing. Now, what is sports What is sports-washing?
0: Sports yeah, that's my question, what's sports-washing?
1: Sports-washing was a term coined by Amnesty International in 2018 to describe how authoritarian regimes use and manipulate sports as a tool to whitewash their atrocious human rights records. So in the so same
0: way that you wash your money, you're, you're, this is yeah. you're using a sports event so that everyone's looking at the sports event. They're not looking at the human rights, the human trafficking, the princesses Absolutely. that are running away, the guys in prison. Got it.
1: In, in, uh, in more academic terms, it would be a soft power strategy in a form of sports diplomacy. So there is always a political, and that, the idea behind that is there's always political motivation behind any sports event that they have, whether it be rebranding the country, increasing tourism, uh, the, the eliminating a dependence on oil, which is a big one for Saudi Arabia right now and the United Arab Emirates. All these are great examples of why they want a sports watch. And again, in, in, fixing up the rebranding the country is a huge one for them because they want to be seen as progressive.
0: Okay, so they want to be seen as progressive. They got all these issues, these human rights issues, these allegations of human trafficking, the allegations that it's the pirate capital of the world not an international business center. And in comes this guy from Ireland on the run from a blood feud from North Dublin drug traffic. What's his role in all this?
1: So he, when, he gets, when he gets to the United Arab Emirates and he gets to Dubai, he starts meeting all these different shares. So his this is the part where he goes off the radar for quite a bit and then re-emerges as this key figure. So we can create this sort of trajectory based on where he was when he arrived in the country and where he ended up in 2020 when Tyson Fury announcing that he had been involved in the in the boxing agreement and he names names uh, Daniel Kinahan. In that in the over those years, we can assume that Daniel's building his network. He's meeting with the Sheikhs from the United Arab Emirates, he's meeting with important royal family members in Bahrain and he's doing the exact same thing in Saudi Arabia three countries that are looking to use combat sports as sports watch and they know that boxing is a big deal and they are hearing that Daniel Kinahan is this you know big notorious figure from Ireland who gets things done it's always those kinds of stuff and that's what they want to hear in the Middle East they want to hear that someone's about to get things done and he'll bring the fights that they need it's no shortage of money it's no shortage of money when it comes to the Middle East. Saudis will Saudi will always pay more than anybody else bidding in the entire world. You can just assume that because they have the money to do so, and their overarching geopolitical goals are so are so important to them that they will spend on them. They will spend for these things they're looking for media exposure. All these countries are looking for media exposure
0: i I, I have my students here at the University of New Haven. Um, I do a, a whole module on the fight game. And part of the fight game is that I take a look, I have my students take a look at the congressional testimony of a guy named Sammy the Bull Graviano. And as you know, and many of our listeners know, Sammy the Bull was a hitman for John Gotti and killed at least 20, many people say far, far more, uh, mafia hits. And at one point he, he testifies before the U.S. Senate, uh, committee of the U.S. Senate, talking about boxing. And talking about the role of boxing with the mob, and he says, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing massive number of pages, it's not for the gambling. It's not for match fixing. It's not even for the purse. What's really, really important is that boxing and fighting is a way into the guy who's now the president of the United States, Donald Trump and Steve Wynn, the guy who was essentially the uncrowned king of Las Vegas. We could never meet these powerful guys if we didn't have boxing, if we didn't have these promoting these fights. Is a similar thing going on here with Daniel Kinahan and the blood families of the Middle East?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, it's a form of diplomacy. This is how you bring in and all authoritarian regimes are doing this in one way, shape, or form, but back to the Middle East and back to Saudi and the UAE, this was essential for them. They knew that they stood one step behind when it came to the Western world, that all events are taking place in Las Vegas, the fight capital of the world, etc. So how did they morph Saudi Jeddah on the sea into the fight capital of the world? That's what they're trying to figure out. How did they form more uh, Abu Dhabi? Because it's more Abu Dhabi than it is Dubai when it comes to Dubai is where he's harboring, but Abu Dhabi is the one that's interested in combat sports. That's why they took on Fight Island, for instance. And that has nothing to do with Daniel Kinahan as much as it just shows and showcases and highlights for us just how much the UAE government's willing to invest just for the sake of media exposure. They paid for just, everything. just like a second.
0: Fight Island, it's happening right now. Tell us about that. What is that about?
1: So the UFC initially wanted to come back. I mean, of course, we're in the we right now, we're in amidst we're amidst the, the coronavirus pandemic. So the UFC really insisted that it was going to come back to action as soon as possible, was not going to wait out the brunt of this pandemic, was instead going to come back and try and do it as safely as possible. They tried to do certain events in the United States, it worked, but then they decided no, you know what, we can't get any of our international fighters here. We need to find a different location. So they came to an agreement with the Abu Dhabi government, and particularly the, the, the tourism department, where, as as the reports have surfaced recently, the United Arab Emirates, particularly the Abu Dhabi government, is going to pay the overhead for the UFC to come to Yas Island in Abu Dhabi, this little peninsula on, uh, on the edge of Abu Dhabi, on the outskirts of Abu Dhabi, where... It, they would live in pseudo isolation for several weeks in a row and host like a four event series over the course of 15 days where everybody will be tested repeatedly. It's basically created sort of a quarantine island and they've covered all the expenses for the UFC, including accommodations, flights, uh uh, that they've built them a custom-built stadium there. And, of course, we were just talking about labor rights and labor issues that has to pop up in there. They've built a custom-built arena in the midst of summer. And summer heat in Abu Dhabi is not to be... Uh, it's no joke, you know what I mean? It's really no joke. So you, you, you take all those elements and realize that, they, that the UFC got this extreme sweetheart deal out of this. Why, though? Because the United Arab Emirates and particularly the Abu Dhabi government wanted... The media exposure, they admit as much in quotes when they were asked, why are you doing this? Why are you paying for all this? Well, we want the media exposure. They know they're never going to break even in this investment, but they are looking long-term. They're looking for the sales pitch this is for their tourism department. They're looking to rebrand all sorts of human rights accusations. They want to present themselves as, as this lovely location, sort of exotic hotspot in the summer. And at the same time, they're using the UFC as a litmus test to see if they can bring other sports to this island and create this sort of isolated island. I mean, it could be lots of money for them if they brought the NBA. Like, I mean, the NBA is locked up right now in Disney World. Imagine if they could come to fight Ireland. Just same,
0: you've made a second, Kareem, you've made a jump from using an Irish guy with a very troubled background, wanted by most of the police forces, used by the Middle Eastern areas to say, hey, we don't care. We just want you to arrange fights to make us look good and divert the attention. Talk to us about the uh, plans by Bahrain, another country uh, separated by a number of actual blood feuds and rivalries between their crown princes. But what is Bahrain trying to do with Daniel Kinahan and why?
1: Bahrain, always, so, so, so in order to understand why they brought Daniel Kinahan, and it's important to understand in Bahrain that the, one, of, one of the King Hamad, uh, al-Khalifa, who rules Bahrain has ruled Bahrain for going on two decades now. His fifth, the fifth son, so not not someone who's in line for the throne, not a crown prince, whose name is Sheikh Khaled. Sheikh Khaled was a lieutenant in the army and really just low, uh, quite a low-key member. Like even during the uh, the Arab or the Arab upspring uh, the Arab uh, spring sorry uprising in. Uh, in Bahrain was not was not a key figure in it whatsoever. He was young at the time. He's still only in his twenties or early thirties at this point. What he did was decided that he's a big fan of combat sports, so he decided to open up his own MMA promotion and boxing promotion and have this sort of fight club where people can come in and train. And again, it was something for him. He wanted to end up uh, rubbing shoulders with all the elite UFC fighters. He had Conor McGregor's coach come and train a lot at the at the at the fight club for a long time or at least for the first year of the Fight club. I mean, at one point he was cornering Frankie Edgar when Frankie Edgar was UFC champion. Like by cornering him, I mean like holding the bucket and the towel, et cetera, as well, like all that kind of stuff. And again, that was brilliant marketing on the Sheikh's part because he presented himself as this sort of down-to-earth prince rather than this, I'm above all of you, I'm just going to be a patron and pay for you. Instead, he was the one who was always pictured, you know, sweaty and on the mats with these, with these athletes or, you know cornering them for fights I cornered
0: boxing fights and there's a lot of spitting going on it's not not a clean you know like there's a lot of harking Mm -hmm. and spitting and sweating and blood all over you so fair play to the man you know that's not the kind of thing that you expect a crown prince to do you expect him in the royal box but good for him for doing that what is the connection between him and this alleged by U.S. State Department and Europol and Irish police and all these people that what is the, the link between this crown prince and this alleged Irish mobster?
1: So the crown prince, over the past three years, his promotion has really expanded. And it's, gone, it's, it's an MMA promotion that works all around the world. It's one of the top, say, I'd say, in, within the top five in terms of MMA promotions on, on a world state. And he's been expanding into boxing. So I get a random press release one morning telling me that KHK, MMA, KHK Sports, which is the, 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 the Sheikh Khaled, Khaled Hamad Al Khalifa, as it stands for his name, KHK Sports uh, has, has reached an agreement with Daniel Kinahan to become a special advisor in boxing. And I read this, and I, I really thought I was being trolled that morning. I really thought this could not possibly be real. But no, it absolutely was Daniel Kinahan, and mind you, he actually gave his very first statement since the Regency Hotel shooting in that press release. So the first time Daniel Kinahan had spoken publicly in four whole years was in that press release for Bahrain. Right,
0: and can that, I just that, can I can I just rein, rein this in as a, a you know a guy from an Irish family? And a man who, like yourself, loves his Shakespeare and his literature. Because I just want to take this moment. Kenahan clan has come from North Dublin, has come from, um, you know, this tough area in the 1980s. And here they are meeting with this maverick crown prince of Bahrain. And there's a kind of a, Prince Hal, you know, the, the Shakespearean character, the good time guy, that's, you know, parting along. And this is a moment where these two improbable characters come together in this tremendous arc. The next week Tyson Fury, the current heavyweight boxing champion, blows the gaff. He says, Hey, everybody, you know, Thanks, and the world's attention, at least in the boxing world's attention, focuses suddenly, what happens at that moment? As Kenahan's kind of hand is, you know, the Icarus moment, he's getting close to the sun, what happens then?
1: he He really, he was on, he was on a trajectory to become one of the most significant and influential figures in the world of boxing entirely. Had Tyson Fury just not mentioned his name and decided not to thank him, I think we'd be I think we'd be talking about something different right now. I think we, uh, like, our conversation will be leading in a different direction, more like a, what, what should we do about Kenhan rather than what has now happened to him. So what has happened is that there's been so much pressure, and really good on the Irish press for doing this, because it really did mostly come from its internal pressure from Ireland, and everybody just being so outraged, and Irish politicians saying, how can this happen? How are these governments working with one of the most corrupt and awful figures in our country, like notoriously well-known. And this and this just goes on and on. I mean, there were so many figures from boxing who were willing to sports watch for Daniel Kinahan. I mean, you had Bob Arum. You had all these incredible... You had Carl Frampton. You had Tyson Fury. You had big, probably, you big was, champions exactly, and big promoters. Really yes. big names. I mean, you have Billy Joe Saunders, who's, who, who's literally like, I will retire. I don't want to compete if I don't get to keep my, my advisor and manager, Daniel Kinahan. Like all these people really stuck up for him in the UFC. Darren Till, who's who's a big time, who's a big time fighter yes. in the UFC as well. He when he was confronted and asked about his his ties to Daniel to, to Daniel Kinahan, he simply said, "And andy and what?" Basically, was his responses. "And what? I'm friends with him, so what?" So much. So much
0: was the tension. You know, there was a real. I mean, it was a big, big moment. It was so bad that even the tabloid press in Ireland and everybody knows the reputation of the tabloid press Mm -hmm. in any country said, you know what? This is too much for us. Mm -hmm. If this fight goes ahead, we are not going to print a single sentence word about this fight because we've, we're not going to do it. And the tabloid press in Ireland said, that's it. We're not going to do it. We're not going to report this fight. Absolutely. Prime minister comes in and says, you know, or excuse me, the then prime minister then says, um, you know, this is too much. What is going on now as we speak in July, the third week of July 2020 with this?
1: <laughs> what has gone on now, especially over, over, over the course of the last two, three weeks, is that every entity that was once on Daniel Kinahan's side that had just partnered with Kinahan has slowly stepped away and parted ways with Daniel Kinahan. It started with now a second press release from Bahrain, with uh, the KHK sports saying that they have parted ways with Daniel Kinahan without, the of course, mentioning- So that's the any, prince, any the crown why. prince has just exactly. said- The crown prince basically says, no, 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 no. This is this is way too much for us. We don't want any of this. We have important uh, bilateral relations with both the, U- both the UK and with Ireland. We don't want to risk any of these kinds of things whatsoever, so we're gonna keep this separate. They, they decide to part ways. Slowly this continues. Tyson Fury himself has had to say that Daniel Kinahan will no longer be his special advisor. And he did this very begrudgingly. He also suggested that Daniel Kinahan should be prime minister. So it's one of those those two-sided things. He's like, oh yeah, he won't be my thing. But you know what? I still like him a lot, basically. So there's still, of course, this, it was very begrudgingly done. And then you had the same thing, Bob Arum even had to step away and Bob Arum was going to start, I mean, if you had tied in Bob Arum, one of the biggest promoters in boxing, along with Daniel Kinahan, they would have been unstoppable, especially with the money offered in the Middle East. They would have cornered boxing at that point. Those dreams are now gone, or at least for the time being. But I truly believe there is no way for Daniel Kinahan to rise again without all of this coming to the surface again. So when you ask me how this all links back to the Hutch Kinahan rivalry, Truth be told is, had all these assassinations never happened, chances are Daniel really might have been able to reinvent himself. And sure, there would have been occasional articles such as me reporting saying, how did uh, a royal family tie itself in with an alleged gangster? It wasn't going to get the same media backlash and criticism and public sort of shaming that it did at this stage when we've seen so many executions occur in... uh, in Dublin over the, last, over the last couple of years, or the last few years, really.
0: So the ghost of the monk and the hutch have risen <laughs> up, and they've destroyed his dreams. That's extraordinary. Listen, Kareem, thank you so much for coming in uh, and speaking today. It was a real pleasure. We've covered an enormous amount of ground. And thank you as well for your work, because let's make it very, very clear to our listeners, you have been tilling a very lonely field. Uh, Yes, there was a bunch of guys that jumped in in the last few weeks, but you have been covering this, the links between organized crime, human rights abusers, and many of the combat sports. And we would love to have you back um, uh, on another episode of Crime Waves to talk about other stories. Um, I'd love to talk to you about the uh, the role of soccer fans in the Middle East and the politics and the crime there. It'd be awesome to speak about that.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jack. Honestly, I'll I'll say this quickly before we go, is that
0: Please. the first time
1: you ever emailed me, it was a shock to me, honestly, because I know exactly who you are and I followed your work. So the first time you reached out to me to say, honestly, I can't remember, it was something regarding one of my articles at the time. I I just had to sit there at my email for a while and just look at that being like, I guess I guess I I, I made it now. <laughs> so you you are a huge influence on me as well. Thank you for what you've done over the years, and I love that I'm seeing you mentoring a whole new generation because I hope all those students realize just how lucky they are to have you. I wish I had someone like you when I was young. I mean, I'm
0: you're, 28 you're, now, you're, but you're, I wish I had someone kind. like you
1: 10 years ago.
0: <laughs> Thank you, brother. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Listen, let's please come back. We're on the same obviously on the same wavelength. A lot about these stories. And this stuff that I think is going to blow our listeners' mind. Once we get into the whole thing about Dagestan and Chechnya oh, and then yes. w- when we start talking about the role, the, the really strong political role of soccer fans, I think, listeners, mm-hmm. your mind is just going to be blown. It's a whole new perspective to Egyptian and Turkish politics. Karim, thank you, brother. Thank you so much.
1: It was an absolute pleasure, Declan.
0: Thank you. Hey, this is Declan Hill. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, one point that I want to return to from that interview is you remember in that question about the testimony of the mafia hitman, Sammy Graviano, I mentioned that the mob used boxing, this is what he said in before Congress, to get access to the casino kingpins like Donald Trump. Now, I want to be clear and fair here. There was nothing in that testimony suggests that Trump was working with the mob. And so I don't want to be accused of goosing a story or being you know, needlessly sensationalist. There's simply too many good stories in this last episode for me to do so. The dynamic that Graviano was speaking about was that the mob was trying to get to guys like Trump, not that they were actively working together. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. We really value your time and interest. So if you liked us, please do subscribe, like, or leave a comment. And tune in next week, we have an extraordinary interview with a man who was at the center of an international spy story and the Olympics.